taxidermy. Known for being stuffed. Famous for being mounted. Nobody thinks much about it, so let's have some fun. Let's find out why taxidermy is secretly incredibly fascinating. Hey there, folks. Welcome to a whole new podcast episode of Podcast All About Why Being Alive is More Interesting Than People Think It Is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm very much not alone this week. Of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Katie Golden. Katie, hi. Hey, that's me. Yeah. And hello, everyone. Thank you so much for participating in the Maximum Fun Drive. It, like, technically ended, uh, I think, about 70 minutes after I posted this, but... Uh, it's always a good time to support Maximum Fun, and we're so glad to be joined by two of our buddies from our new network, from the show, Just the Zoo of Us, from many other things as well. Please welcome Christian Weatherford and Ellen Weatherford. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hi. Hello. I'm so excited. I'm excited to talk to you again. This is not my first time talking to either of you. Yes. So I'm back, baby. <laughs> this time I brought a friend. It's me. <laughs> Alex, I'm sorry that now you're outnumbered by animal podcasters. We've slowly right. taken over and we've turned <laughs> we've turned this into we've an got animal them podcast. On the ropes. <laughs> it's great to be. If if I bring up humans, gang up on me. Be like, no, no, stop it. <laughs> I'm personally just glad it's not taxonomy because yeah, yeah, I don't feel like getting into those weeds. <laughs> Only if you want to hear me struggle with Latin. <laughs> I, I hate it. I hate it so much. All my homies hate taxonomy. <laughs> is it is it because taxonomy is like antique and European? Is that the issue? I don't know. It's just confusing, and they're always like sort of reshifting it around like we thought this fish was related to this fish but actually it's related to that fish and it's also i don't know it's a mess <laughs> it's annoying <laughs> there should be merch or shirts or something of like taxonomy stinks that's the whole and then you just yeah. wear it to <laughs> middle school or high school biology and and mess with the teacher that'll show them yeah yeah they'll love that for sure <laughs> you definitely won't get a dress code violation for that <laughs> I realized as I said that I'm basically encouraging antagonizing teachers, and that's probably not the best uh, stance to take. Uh, <laughs> it's not really what I'm into. I have a good taxonomy, anti-taxonomy shirt. It'd be taxonomy. What kind of genus came up with that? Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I took immeasurable psychic damage from that sentence. The pain means the joke is working, but we're not, right. talking, about, <laughs> we're not talking about taxonomy today. Thank goodness. Uh, we're talking about something else, right, Alex? Yes. And thank you very much to Lister and supporter Caroline Gaston and other folks as well. But she really cheer led this and also like does taxidermy at home because the topic is taxidermy. And, wow. and let's start with Christian and Ellen, because I, I also checked with y'all before I set this as the topic of the episode, because I don't know how all animal people feel about it. But what is your relationship to the topic or opinion of the topic of taxidermy? 
Hmm. Well, you know, I have always felt largely neutral towards taxonomy in the sense that it's not something that bothers me. Taxidermy. You know, I know sorry, that... we, we queued up taxonomy. Yeah, mentally. Wow. Anyway. <laughs> I had it stuck in my head. Sorry. <laughs> taxidermy. I've always felt kind of like neutral about it. It's not something that like bothers me. I know that, you know, a lot of people that have a, a strong soft spot for animals can sometimes be a little disturbed or unsettled by seeing, you know, a dead animal body or parts that have been posed to mimic a lifelike animal. I know that can be unsettling for a lot of people, but it's never really bothered me, maybe because it seems like it's just around so often that it doesn't seem particularly unusual. And then just last week, we had an opportunity to see some really incredible taxonomy, taxidermy. Wow, I'm going to struggle so bad. (laughs) We saw some incredible taxidermy that was used for research purposes um, in a great museum that we saw. So I was I was big, a big proponent of that taxidermy. That was great. Mm hmm. But we've also seen the other end of that spectrum. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> with very uh, poor quality taxidermy being hung up in like a seafood restaurant or something. I was going to bring up fish oh, camps yeah. because we live in Florida where there are lots and lots of fish camps. And fish camps will usually be decorated with all sorts of taxidermy. Uh, There's one in particular. What was the one we went to? But this place was just like wall to wall. Like every possible animal you could imagine was just like stuffed and and posed and hung on the walls. They had like pronghorns and elk and all sorts of wild stuff. I figured it would just be a big marlin like I've seen in in pop culture. Wow, it's everything. They for sure had that. (laughs) They for sure had that. And more. And more. All this and more. Yeah. Nothing that perks up my appetite more like an animal mausoleum. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if maybe they're trying to give you a preview of like... This is what you can expect from it. But like also taxidermy. Does this is not, what you're eating. Look into it, its glass eyes. That's the thing. It doesn't evoke freshness. You know what I mean? Like it's so like stiff and preserved that like it doesn't evoke appetizing. It it's not mm-hmm. it's not giving uh that's what I want for lunch. <laughs> Um, with the museum kind, thank y'all for sending pictures of what you saw. Do you do you want to name the museum that it was at? Yeah, um, I have to admit, I don't for sure know how it's pronounced, but I think it's Beatty Biodiversity Museum. It's B-E-A-T-Y, maybe Beatty Biodiversity Museum, and and that is at the University of British Columbia up in Vancouver, where we were visiting just last week. And um, my friend Sophia Osborne, who is actually one of the hosts of the podcast Beyond Blathers, uh, goes to UBC and suggested that we check out this museum because it has an actual real mounted blue whale skeleton. Uh, So we got to see the blue whale skeleton. Mm -hmm. But they also this is like a research museum. So rather than being set up into like exhibits and like, you know, what do you call them? Dioramas and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was set up like library shelves mm-hmm. and cabinets. And you would just kind of walk down the rows of the shelves and look at the specimens that were like either mounted taxidermy or like in jars or all sorts of stuff like that. They use for like research. Um, yeah. It was really cool. I was really glad we got to see those. 
I can smell the old formaldehyde now. <laughs> yeah, looking at him. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't notice any smell. Did you notice a smell? No, not in not in the museum. No, they yeah. they did a really okay. good job uh managing the smell, which we we also watched a documentary on the um logistics and preparation of the blue whale skeleton. Oh yeah. And evidently the Shoot. smell from the whale oil that was like soaked into the bones was a major hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> Because it took them months to get to like degrease the bones until it wouldn't smell anymore. Uh, hilarious, absolutely hilarious, and I'm so glad they did that because it didn't smell. Yep. My technique: dish soap. <laughs> I wonder if they tried that. That's right through that whale grease. <laughs> when Katie's at her really really big sink, that's what she uses when she's working on those whale specimens. Yeah. At the super sink. <laughs> to give you an idea, they almost they almost had to cut open the doors of the museum to get the bones inside. So that's like that sense. <laughs> how much dish soap you'd need. And those are the the individual bones. So it's, it's not like they were trying to move a fully constructed skeleton. This this was just getting the skull through. Yeah, getting the skull through the door. They were worried that they weren't going to be able to fit it through the entire front doors of the museum, and they were worried they were going to have to like <laughs> cut the frame of it open. They should have just smashed a whale skeleton shaped hole in like the Kool-Aid man, but it's a whale. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it was a really cool experience. That was definitely the best taxidermy I've ever seen. I've seen, like Christian mentioned, we've seen some stinkers. We've seen some real sure. fails. I've also been tricked by taxidermy in that I thought jackalopes were real until I was like a teenager. Because of like, you yeah. know, people will do like, you know, jackalope mounts and stuff like that. And I totally bought it. I totally thought I they mean, were real. Rabbit with herpes versus rabbit with antlers. You know, same it's difference. It's not that big of a stretch. It seems yeah. so normal and real. <laughs> if you've ever seen that, I mean, there are rabbits, rabbits who get herpes, who get these like wart life growths on their faces and heads and sometimes oh. it can look a great deal like antlers mm -hmm. and there's some speculation that could be the origin of the jackalope myth but it could also just be a coincidence gross yeah. <laughs> that's yeah, nasty <laughs> i feel like this is gonna be a nasty heavy episode <laughs> yeah i it, it's an interesting topic for a podcast especially because so much of it can be visual so, like, if folks out there are fans of the bad taxidermy blogs where they have pictures of, like, a weird lion with its tongue hanging out and stuff, we, we're not really going to cover that because it's so, it's just, you should just go look at it. But this will this will be a lot of, like, the origins and history of it because I, I think I have two different extended family members who like to joke to me about jackalopes as a kid. And I would be like, <laughs> I, I don't have much context for where this joke is coming from, but sure. <laughs> And That's the thing is, like, I've, I've mostly lived in the southeast for almost my entire life. Like, I would have no reason to, like, yeah. <laughs> have ever come across any sort of jackalope lore or anything. So I think I just saw a mount of one one time and just, like, added it to my mental catalog of animals that exist. And I was like, yeah, that's probably one of them. <laughs> Yeah, because like my other main taxidermy experiences are museums where they were trying to, in that late 1800s way, be very scientific. Like I'd go to the Field Museum in Chicago and they'd be like, behold, this taxidermied gorilla. And I'd be like, there, there's something up with this, I feel like, but also it is a <laughs> specimen. I can see it for sure. Like, like if I didn't have actual zoos nearby, this is a good way to see a gorilla. 
That's mm-hmm. true. A very uh, low maintenance gorilla. <laughs> yeah. All you got to do is stick some servo motors in there, and hey, you got a moving realistic gorilla. <laughs> oh, I love Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> These animatronics are getting wild. Well, and from here, I think we can get into that stuff about especially the history of taxidermy, but also what's going on with it today. On every episode, our first fascinating thing about the topic is a quick set of fascinating numbers and statistics. This week, that's in a segment called Who is the host? That's a fact machine with all the stats. Alex. You're damn right. Who is co-host? Who shares numbers with the listeners? Katie. Can you dig it? Yeah, and folks, that was submitted by Nick Name on the Discord. Thank you. And we have a new name for this segment every week. Please make them as silly and wacky and bad as possible. Submit through Discord or to sifpod at gmail.com. That was great. I feel like I got to witness such a moment there. That was pivotal. (laughs) Thank you. We are cool and from the 1970s. That's what I think. We got some pipes. And uh, and first number this week is almost 500 years old, because uh, almost 500 years old, that is the minimum age of the world's oldest extant piece of taxidermy that we know of, like taxidermy that has been held together, put together all of that time. Okay, so so you mean like the the piece that we still have, that's not necessarily to say that like that's when taxidermy for sure began. That's right. Yeah. It makes sense because you'd expect them to kind of break down over time because it is still like soft tissue and organic matter. Like it's going to it's it's not going to hold up forever. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's leather and fur and there are insects and stuff that do like to eat that. Um, Or, you know, people over time picking at it like jerky. You don't know what happens with those things. You put it in the wash on the wrong setting. But, yeah, they wear and tear over time. (laughs) Yeah, they're not invincible. And and this one, I think it, it speaks to what lasts and doesn't. Because it turns out the oldest known piece of taxidermy we still have is a crocodile. Uh, and so that's that a relatively tough animal. You know? Yeah, full of osteoderms and stuff like that that's going to stick around. It's not exactly full of like hair and stuff that'll fall out. Unless this one had like a full head of hair and we just won't ever know. <laughs> it's the one. <laughs> the one. The one crocodile that just has luscious locks and we'll never know. What if they always did, but like that stuff never fossilized? So, like, <laughs> we just never found fossils of it, so we just don't know that crocodiles used to have, like, lion manes. Yeah, it's like the, the yeah. elephant ear. ear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what if they had throat sacks? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> and this, this crocodile, it's in a church in northern Italy. Uh, it's in a town called Ponte Nassa in Lombardy. And I looked it up. That's very far from Katie's location. That would be a long train ride. It's three hours away. I'm going to go. I want to see this crocodile. Nice. Go see the old crocodile. Atlas Obscura has pictures of this. If you go to the town church of Ponte Nossa in Lombardy, it's called Sanctuary of Our Lady of Immaculate Tears. They have a centuries-old taxidermied crocodile hanging from the ceiling. Uh, And there's a few mysteries around it. We don't know the exact age. We just know that there are church records of them moving the crocodile in January of 1534. 
1534, nearly 500 years ago. So it's at least that old. Oh, so the taxidermy itself is probably older then. Yeah, like probably. And apparently it was in the church attic for more than a century. And then somebody found Jeez. it again in the 1700s, hung it back up. <laughs> but there's. Yeah, and it looked- <laughs> It's just like hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, it's just like suspended, uh, like an acrobat or something. Yeah. Hmm. Can you imagine? You're like, oh, gosh, I really need to get around to cleaning out that old attic. Let me just look through here, see what's back here. Oh, my God. (laughs) I'd be delighted. (laughs) It's a crocodile. crocodile. (laughs) This is going up immediately. (laughs) Right. It's like when you're going through the garage and you're like, oh, my God, I forgot I had this poster. We need to put this up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, especially some beautiful old Italian church. It's like, finally, something to distract from the boring, amazing paintings on the ceiling. Finally. (laughs) Do you think it was was something they put up? (laughs) Was it something they put up to get like kids interested in coming to church? Yeah. They're like, come check out our crocodile and also pray. It'd work on me. (laughs) wine crackers and a crocodile now you're talking (laughs) the only improvement i could think of is if they had some sort of like setup where it could like swing like maybe it wasn't out all the time but like sometimes in the middle of the service like boom it's just like they deploy it suddenly (laughs) attach it to a wall fan and have it go around and around (laughs) (laughs) i would come every single week (laughs) I would never skip. I would never miss a service. Put a cape on it. Call it Super Croc. Yeah. There he goes. <laughs> that that would convert me. We're kidding, but I, I got to wonder if that somehow was what they were going for, because this all leads into an immediate takeaway for the show. Takeaway number one. A lot of the world's oldest taxidermy is specifically crocodiles in European churches and government buildings. Hmm. What's the relationship? <laughs> what, yeah, what, is there like what's a religious, happening here? <laughs> religious connotation to the crocodiles? Atlas Obscura has a lot on this. They say that there, there's probably two good theories as to why this keeps popping up. Because there's another croc in the village of Grazia near Mantua in Lombardy. There's a Czech town hall in the city of Brno that has one, but... One theory is that crocodiles reminded people of the dragon in the legend of St. George. Oh. There's a a saint who famously fought and killed a dragon. He's the patron saint of England for that reason. And so, Hmm. like, people might have thought, hey, this is a taxidermy representation of a dragon, or they might have just mistaken it for a dragon straight up. Uh, So that could be part of why. Like, that is a actual religious connection, maybe. I can see that. Also, like, because so much of the, like, stories from the Bible, you know, take place in areas that do have crocodiles. Like, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure crocodiles are in, like, some of those. I think, like, Egypt, right? So then, you know, there's a flight from Egypt and the pharaoh is involved in the Old Testament and stuff. You know, it would make sense. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was going to ask, do do they know where these crocodiles were from? Like, perhaps the Nile or... Somewhere else? Yeah, that's a great question. There's not, there's no record. And also, I, I find this less believable. Atlas Obscura wonders if maybe crocodiles had a bigger range centuries ago and kind of worked their mm. way into Southern Europe. So that could be another reason they were available and handy. I was going to say, there's one thing that 
British people like doing is stealing stuff from Egypt. So I would imagine <laughs> they probably jacked some of those. Like, I will take one of your cr- finest crocodiles, please. Just someone with a very long coat and a very crocodile-like protrusion. Like, no, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> I am simply pregnant. <laughs> uh, and then the the other compelling theory is that European churches might have had all sorts of taxidermied animals in there, and just crocodiles are what has lasted. Like the other stuff wasn't maintained properly and got weird and moldy, and they took it down. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine just like feeling something drop on your head, and it's like a chunk of fur from an ancient taxidermied weasel? <laughs> it's a it's an immersive uh noah's ark cosplay experience <laughs> yeah they're like this is what it felt like on the boat okay so i used to i also went to a presbyterian church and it was one of those old Ooh. like carpenter gothic presbyterian churches that's like built like an old wooden ship but upside down like have you seen those churches oh i, I kind of went to one yeah Sure. Yeah. So our church was like built, they, they basically just built a ship and then flipped it over. And that was what the, the church was. So I'm imagining that, but like filled with taxidermied animals. And it definitely is, is giving Noah's Ark. I'm, I'm getting that vibe a lot from that. They, they could be like, this is what it felt like. Yeah. I, I kind of buy it. They'd have to have the animals upside down to really, you know, yeah, like this this is just a oddly frequent basically diorama in especially far northern Italian churches and then also a, a city in the Czech Republic and elsewhere like a, a lot of the taxidermy we still have is crocodiles and, and I do think it's partly because they are such a leathery material to start with. It was relatively easy to preserve once you once you did the maybe harder step of catching a crocodile. <laughs> I mean it- I feel like you just sit on them, right? That's what I always see. You just sit on the crocodile and it's done. You can hold their mouth closed. They're they're not very good at opening yeah. their mouth. You can hold their mouth no. closed. It's yeah. the spinning part. Yeah, the spinning part will get you, won't it? <laughs> 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 I'm I'm hoping that like it my of course the part of my brain that wants to like see the kindness and goodness in everybody hopes that they just came across a crocodile that just happened to already have died peacefully and painlessly in its sleep. And we're like, ah, I shall preserve its body in dignity forever. That definitely sounds like old Europeans. Yeah, they for sure were all about (laughs) doing things peacefully and with dignity. From what I can find about modern taxidermy, it's very driven by that practice. And I think they super did the opposite back in the past. Like, (laughs) nope. Like, how fast can I hunt this? Because I want it uh, in its prime for the taxidermy was kind of the thing. (laughs) Yeah, because I I feel like it. a a lot of times it implies that it is like a a hunting trophy of sorts, right? I mean, depending on how old those are, those those could be pretty impressive, depending on the tools they had. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. Right. (laughs) You'd have your imagine having like your high score in a video game hung from the walls of a church for 500 years. (laughs) (laughs) When and this one is not hunting. The next number is the year 1702, because 1702, that is the year of the death of a woman named Frances Stewart and also the death of her parrot. 
and her African gray parrot, her pet parrot, is believed to be the oldest taxidermied bird that we still have. Wow. wow. So th- did they die in the same year? Yeah, apparently they were close companions for nearly 40 years, and I I don't totally trust Westminster Abbey, but they are the source, and they say that the parrot died shortly after the lady did. Like, it was, uh, you know, implied emotional connection, and then it died. Right. Died of a broken heart. I would believe that. Like, from what I've heard about how closely parrots bond with members of their flock, whether they are bird or human... Uh, and also how notoriously difficult they are to properly care for, I would imagine. Like, I totally yeah. believe that, like, the death of an owner would also be closely followed by the death of a parrot. Oh, I just yeah. wonder if she left the parrot to her, like, nephew Jimmy, and Jimmy kept trying to feed the parrot, like, things parents do not eat. Like, here's another <laughs> cracker and just killed the parrot with bad <laughs> Pizza rolls. <laughs> pizza rolls. Yeah, you want another... Uh, Pizza on a biscuit. Those oh. famous 1702 pizza rolls. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I like the idea that because only the wealthy traveled, like only the nobility had pizza rolls. Like I have been to <laughs> Italia and I have discovered this. Uh, <laughs> At their bougie high society parties, they like would serve pizza rolls on a little intricate <laughs> silver platter. <laughs> Because this this person was very, very wealthy. They were titled Duchess of Richmond, Frances Teresa Stewart. Uh, She was a maid of honor to the queen, who was the wife of King Charles II. This story also speaks to, like, how differently we treat humans and animals in in this situation. Because before Frances Stewart's death, she commissioned a life-size wax effigy of herself Hmm. and arranged to have that dressed in her clothes and jewelry and presented in Westminster Abbey. Uh, but then she also arranged for her parrot to be taxidermied, and they kept the entire skeleton intact as a framework and preserved it in a case. And so it's more than 300 years old and still with us because it was a really rich person who was like into preserving everything. She was like, I'm going to mm. preserve me in wax, the bird in taxidermy, we're doing it. Hmm. Taxidermy for thee and not for me. <laughs> <laughs> Coward. Taxidermy yourself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at this taxidermy uh, parrot's expression, and it is a little skeptical. It's like uh, not he doesn't look totally on board with this. He doesn't look horrified, but he's like, wait, you're going to what now? And then that's where they captured it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it's just so weird that basically every story in this is going to be available as a picture. Because it's taxidermy. It's meant to be seen. It's meant to be presented. Yeah. It's meant to be smelled. It's meant to be touched and felt. Right. Nibbled on. Christian just pulled up a picture on his phone and showed it to me. This this is a a bombastic side eye that I'm witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. And you never know if it's like the taxidermist wanted it to look that way or it just felt that way or like it's a whole weird version of virtual reality. And speaking of them, the next number is one taxidermist per 15,000 people. Uh, One taxidermist per 15,000 people. That's what the British census said the London population was in the 1890s. There was one taxidermist Mm. per 15,000 Londoners. That seems like a lot. Okay, London in the 1890s. Now that you said that, that makes more sense because I was, I was thinking, I was like, that seems really high. And then you yeah. said London in the 1890s. I was like, oh yeah, they were so into that. 
it was a huge business. And Smithsonian says that the British census recorded 369 full-time taxidermists in London in 1891. Mm. And apparently that general era was the historical peak of this because most people didn't have easy access to photos. Most people couldn't travel, but rich people were traveling and also doing a lot of sport hunting. And then also European countries were doing a lot of imperialism. So you have a lot of wealthy, powerful people bringing samples back to show animals to people that way. A lot of people just carrying sacks of ocelots to their rich (laughs) person's estate. We really, I think, underestimate like the value of having access to photographs and the internet and zoos and books and stuff, because throughout most of history, if you had told people that there was like unicorns and dragons and stuff, they'd be like, yeah, sure. What do I know? Like they they very well may be, yeah. you know, like and so ta- taxidermy was just like a way you could show somebody an animal that there's no way they would have ever in their lives encountered for any other reason. Exactly, yeah. And and especially if somebody did acquire the animal basically ethically, like if they found a deceased animal or something, like that's just good. You're, you're able to educate people. You're able to show them the world by, uh, by stuffing this and mounting it, doing it. This was just a huge business. And then with the rise of amateur photography and movie making at the start of the 1900s, Uh, You know, people just got a hold of better and cheaper pictures. Also, in the mid-1900s, there started to be a real stigma against big game hunting. So it's really a mid-to-late-1800s peak for this practice. Yeah, and photographs of an animal feel a little less haunted than their skeleton inside, sort of (laughs) some foam, and then their skin pulled over it. Yeah. I feel like the skeletons look creepier to me. You know what I mean? I don't don't know. Maybe like the skeletons, like because of how often skeletons are used in like horror media and stuff. I feel like skeletons imply like more decay and death than like with tax. Also, I think with taxidermy, sometimes there you get this weird uncanny valley effect where you're like, that's definitely mostly what this animal looks like. (laughs) But like. (laughs) Just short. It's like something just a little. (laughs) A little bit not quite right. For me, for some reason, taxidermied birds don't bother me at all. Uh, Most taxidermied mammals also don't bother me, but certain taxidermied mammals do kind of... I think it's the one that ones that can have really expressive faces where I can like Mm. read their faces like primates, dogs, cats, you know, I think that sometimes those like I I get like I'm looking into their face and they're making an an expression and I'm like, "Mm, don't like that. You're dead, though. (laughs) (laughs) It's it really is uncanny because you almost feel like two minds are working like it's however the animal felt Mm. and lived and then however the human decided to present it and so it's like not quite real but but also it's objectively really the body of the animal so you don't know yeah i wonder if that's why fish taxidermy is so popular because fish don't really make any sort of facial expressions so it's hard to get them wrong I know. Have you ever looked directly into the eyes of a pufferfish? <laughs> we saw at, at the Seattle Aquarium last week, we saw this porcupine fish. Biggest absolute unit was this lad. And he was enormous <laughs> and had just the most blissful 
empty headed smile I've ever seen. Just you could tell there was not a single thought in that big, beautiful balloon of a fish. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> Parrotfish, too. Parrotfish are very photogenic. <laughs> Nothing going on between those eyes. Incredible. They've got a dream. They've got that like blank DreamWorks smirk. <laughs> <laughs> oh well. Speaking of the the more life like the mammals, uh, the next number is a date. It is March fourteenth, nineteen thirty three. So just about a hundred years ago, March fourteenth, nineteen thirty three. That is the date of the death of a sled dog named Balto. Uh, speaking oh, of movies. Oh, we love if, Balto. Very inaccurate movie, but also very good. Well, it turns out that Balto was famous in life and was taxidermied upon death. Uh, like in 1925, <laughs> Balto was part of a sled dog team going to the snowbound city of Nome, Alaska, delivering medication. Balto was immediately famous from that. They made a Balto movie in the 1920s on like various reels of, sh of short film and old technology. And then there were 90s movies about him. But if you go to the Cleveland Museum of Natural History, you can go see Balto. He's there. Wow. I mean, it'd be like if we, after the golden retriever that played Airbud died, we taxidermied him and put him <laughs> on display. Like, look, it's all right. It's Airbud, And put him in a little jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Doing a dunk. <laughs> That's true because it's taxidermy. You can pose them however you want. So you can have them like yeah. midair. <laughs> yeah. Nothing but net. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yet another thing that's not spelled out in the rules of basketball. How to taxidermy <laughs> specifically. <laughs> the rules do not say you cannot have a dead dog that has been stuffed play basketball. <laughs> And, and I'm going to link stuff about there are just a lot of hero dogs of the 20th century that then got taxidermied. It was a big practice. It was like, we're going to honor them and keep them around for people to see. And the other probably biggest example is two Soviet space dogs. Because they, they returned from Earth safely in, in August of 1960, the Soviet mission Sputnik 5 became the first space mission to return life forms to Earth. Wow. Like still alive and everything. And then we killed them and taxidermied them <laughs> immediately. <laughs> I think it was not immediate, which is good. But, I know. Uh, <laughs> but, but you never know. I'm glad we're spelling it out. Uh, Honestly, I, I assume they just didn't survive reentry or something. <laughs> well, okay. So oh, Laika right. did not survive, right? Okay. Yeah. Laika did not yeah. survive the journey. The, like the famous space dog Laika, I think, did not make it. I don't know if they ever even brought that that like vessel back i don't i don't know if it returned from orbit that's a creepy thought right so it's just still out there <laughs> all i know is that the the dog didn't make, sure, did sure. not last uh did not survive that trip but uh I'm, yeah. I'm glad to know that some of them made it back and it was two dogs named belka and strelka who are oh. now taxidermied in a museum in moscow for the cosmonaut period wow wow is it, like you said earlier, like that really highlights the difference in the way that we treat animals and the difference that we treat humans. Because you can, can you imagine, like if we if we just taxidermied all of our like pop culture icons? Like, oh. <laughs> yeah, like we kind of tried with the wax museums, uh, but it's not such a thing with animals. We're like, yeah, put them up, great. 
It's like, yeah, stuff them. Throw them up in the exhibit. Who cares? I think we probably would if we had a good technique to do it without it looking horrifying because i think with a lot of a lot of taxidermy of mammals they are fluffy they're furry and that fur Mm. does a good amount to sort of mm, give them form give them shape uh that makes them not look so creepy and sunken uh so like i think that it's like when you see if you ever see like a primate taxidermy where you part of their face is also taxidermy especially with the older ones that face starts to look really rough it's not good (laughs) yeah Yeah. i guess the fur does a lot to mask the desiccation yes (laughs) unless it's something that is already very like either wrinkly or desiccated like a crocodile or an elephant uh and i have seen i have seen a taxidermied elephant head and even Whoa. that uh it's quite old and even that looks pretty rough like mm. it's yeah i feel like even if the te- the technique was a hundred percent perfected you could get it to like lifelike visual quality if you told me hey there is a dead human body that you can go look at and it, it, even if it didn't look horrifying, I think at a conceptual level, I still would not be interested in like sharing space with a dead human body. Okay, but what if it was connected to some servos and a recording <laughs> and it'd be like, "Hello, I am President Lincoln." <laughs> <laughs> Y'all want to go see Dead Lincoln? <laughs> I, heard, I heard they've got a traveling exhibit. He's in town for a couple weeks. I, I just revealed that the Disney World Hall of Presidents is all of their bodies for real. Like, yeah, it's all of them. They just got them all. I can't believe it. I'm never going to see it the same way again. <laughs> that is definitely for sure something that some parents tell their kids every single day, I bet. I bet every day someone tricks some kid into thinking they're real, actual dead bodies. <laughs> but yeah, that's a so that's just like going on as many hero dogs, but not so much people uh, in museums. And uh, there's one more number here before the break. The number is twenty five, and twenty five is the approximate dinner party capacity of a taxidermied blue whale in Sweden. <gasps> I've heard uh, of this. And they do eat on the blue whale. Is this what is being implied here? They, yeah, they apparently they don't do it anymore. But for many decades, the main museum in Gothenburg, Sweden, had a taxidermied juvenile blue whale. But even a juvenile is big enough that inside of the whale, like the hollow interior, uh, I've got one picture of it. A lot of the stories about it are kind of legendary feeling but there's a picture of a bunch of people drinking coffee at a table inside of the blue whale so that is something that has happened you know it does make me think a bit of whale fall where whale carcasses will fall to the bottom of the ocean and that is a dead whale dinner party i'll tell you what bunch of hagfishes (laughs) bunch of crabs bunch of octopuses just going ham on that whale and here we are humans no better than a hagfish (laughs) because you mentioned that it was like it is taxidermied and i'm assuming that means that it is preserved in such a way that there is no longer any like muscle or flesh left on the blue whale but otherwise you could have like that would be a really interesting concept of like a dinner party where they don't necessarily put the food down in front of you you just 
reach around, like reach behind you and just kind of oh. pull some down off the wall. Nasty. This is how hagfish eat. <laughs> they they actually they drill into the dead whale and then there they are inside. The food is all around them. Oh right. <laughs> I'm not thrilled about the I'm I'm I feel like I'm getting not a mental image but like a mental smell. Like I'm yeah. imagining a smell and it's not good. Mm. That amber grease just kind of yeah. trickling down from the ceiling. <laughs> The uh, the children in that picture don't look too thrilled. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right, had kids in there, Mom, man. Mom, this is weird. <laughs> Mom, this... where's the crocodile hanging from the ceiling? Because <laughs> just like all the parts of the story are weird too. Like apparently, 1865, the year 1865, a juvenile blue whale beached itself on a shore in Sweden and and they didn't think they could get it back in the water and so museum curator August Wilhelm Malm sprang into action had it hauled down to Gothenburg for him to taxidermy it they for decades had dinner parties inside apparently visitors can still like enter it uh, but there is a rumor this, uh, this is not like verifiable but there's a rumor that sometime in the 1930s Museum staff caught a human couple having sex inside the whale, mm. and then they shut down like events inside the whale. That was it. <laughs> that sounds right. I mean, that's it. I doubt that they like scheduled an event to have sex inside the whale. Surely, like they didn't. Yeah, like, passion sign just up. struck in the moment. They were all up in that dead whale, and they were like, "I can't keep my hands off of you." No, I mean, th- I think they did plan it. This seems like a premeditated whale coitus, but I doubt they signed up. Like in the sign-up sheet, for visit coitus in the whale. <laughs> this is a missed opportunity for them to market it. As like, come get it on inside this whale. I didn't know if I could say bad words. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> come, come do it inside the whale. Too bad it wasn't a sperm whale. <laughs> <laughs> Which they, they are. They are actually called sperm whales because these this uh, sort of fluid inside their heads looks like sperm to the whalers uh so that mm. like the joke like hee hee they're called sperm whales it's actually pretty accurate mm. <laughs> if you're having sex inside of a whale it's a real nesting doll situation isn't it like yeah because then does <laughs> your baby come out as whale yeah <laughs> <laughs> well folks that's that's our numbers and a takeaway When we come back from a short break, we'll have a couple more takeaways about the future of taxidermy and biological science in general. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. 
We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on. It's hard to explain what happens on Jordan Jesse Go. So I had my kids do it. Saying swear words. Saying swear words. Yeah, um, bad jokes. Bad jokes? Bad jokes. Maybe it's like you tell people that you're going to interview them and then you just stay there like, like really quiet and try and creep them out. <laughs> it's just really boring. Because of Jordan, right? Not me. Because of both of you. Oh. Subscribe to Jordan Jesse Go, a comedy show for grown-ups. Folks, we have two more takeaways in the main episode. Also, I did not check in with Katie about her relationship to taxidermy or opinion of it. And Katie, how do you feel about it? So I actually don't have too much of a problem with taxidermy as long as it's done sort of scientifically and not, you know, you're not just like killing the animal to taxidermy it. But I have a story about someone who I think was an ethical taxidermist, uh, also uh, a potential roommate. So I was trying to find a place to stay at in Los Angeles, which is very hard if you want to keep any of your money. So I was looking for roommates <laughs> and I wasn't so picky. And one of the uh, people who put up like a listing on Craigslist was like, yay, you know, just you got to be okay with taxidermy. And it's like, all right, I'm fine with taxidermy. That's fine. Um, and then I find out that by okay with taxidermy, she would be doing taxidermy in the apartment. And uh, yeah, oh, and, and like, you know, I was kind of, I was like, okay, well, if she does it in her room, that's fine. And then also, no, she would need the fridge, at least the freezer to store roadkill that she finds because that is what she would taxidermy. <laughs> and right. I was still like, yeah, but it's really cheap. So maybe... And then she started talking about like how she owns some dogs and like how she is planning on taxidermying their ears when they die. And then the I was ears? like, you know, maybe I keep looking, but probably a cool person. I was probably being way too judgmental. Um, well, I, I think that I have heard that a lot of because I, I know people who do like taxidermy, even just like as a hobby for fun. And yeah. I think a common way of like cleaning bones and cleaning like soft tissue off of bones for taxidermy is to use beetles. Like, yeah, beetling oh. beetles is a yes. thing where they like basically put the tub, like put the remains in a in a tub of beetles. So I, I'm cool. imagining this person also probably kept beetles. Like, I'd be cool with that. You know, actually, my I'm sort of being a little glib, but my real reason for not is uh, I'm very sensitive to smell. So I none of that yeah. would be so gross for me to n not be able to deal with the flesh eating beetles, roadkill in the True. freezer. It's True. really it's it would be the smell. Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to like I can't really handle the smell of formaldehyde that well or other strong chemical scents. So. You know, probably a lovely person, though. I, I strongly recommend being their roommate if you can handle the smell of decaying animal carcasses. <laughs> I do. Whenever I think about trying to do this with beetles or not, it feels like a real garage activity. Right? Like you can put That's it in an a garage. <laughs> this is an outside Ventilation. toy. <laughs> Ventilation being the key. Yeah. With the door all the way open and sure. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'd, I'd like that would work, yeah. but at a, in the house, not so much. These are outside smells. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> this is yard behavior. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, get out there, get stuffing, you know? But maybe not maybe not in my room. Yeah. <laughs> get out there, get stuffing. <laughs> That's the tagline, I think. Yeah. It's like the Rick Steves of taxidermy is like, keep on stuffing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, him just walking me through the blue whale where the sex happened. I'm into it. That sounds great. I want him specifically. Keep on stuffing. <laughs> Well, and and kind of speaking of all this, the next big takeaway here is about the potential future. Because takeaway number two, taxidermy was once a form of virtual reality, and it might get replaced by the digital version. Mm. In researching this topic, there was just sort of a mental leap that I got to make, which is that, oh, yeah, in the past, this was basically VR. It was a big stuffed animal, (laughs) but it's a virtual experience of an animal. And because digital VR is getting so good, uh, some museums are going that way instead. I've I've played some games that are like, you know, well, Christian's played VR games. Yeah. You have a VR headset and Mm -hmm. you've played a lot of games on there. Um, And it's cool because it does like there are a lot of VR programs that let you basically virtually explore a place that you probably otherwise never would have gotten to um, or never would have been able to see. And you can do it all from like the comfort of your house, <laughs> basically. Uh, so totally. I could definitely see how like that would fill that role of letting you experience things that otherwise you normally never would have gotten to because of the sort of portability of it. Yeah, that too. It can just be set up in front of people. And, uh, you know, especially as taxidermists got great at it, they'd try to make it an amazing diorama and like pair animals with each other in in sort of a way that modern zoos do now with living animals that that won't eat each other so much. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is kind of an experience to go up close to a taxidermy of a large animal that you would normally not get that face-to-face interaction with like a tiger or a polar bear where you really get the sense of their size like I've been to a lot of museums really love checking out the taxidermy and always when I go up to like see the full size of a tiger or a polar bear it's like yeah you're like oh yeah that that would kill me that'd kill me good (laughs) also like having seen pictures and videos and stuff of zoos of the past and how zoos have been built and the sort of like life that animals living in zoos went through at even just like a few decades ago. It was pretty bleak. So taxidermy yeah. was probably a much more humane way of like educating people about animals and letting them, you know, see what the animal was like and what it would have looked like and stuff without the sort of uh, horrid conditions that zoos you know, would keep animals in before there was any sort of, you know, welfare uh, checks, like any sort of system in place to make sure that the animals were being properly cared for. So like in the historical context, taxidermy, I guess, would have been preferable to the kind of life that animals would have had living in a a poorly outfitted zoo. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Old zoos used to just be some guy going like, look at this, I've got a zebra in my closet. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of concrete a lot of concrete and bars yeah yeah it was not a vibe at all i did i imagine people seeing the closet zebra and being like wow no bars that zebra must be really happy but it's like in a... <laughs> yeah that was upscale yeah and, and that's all dead on like the, this taxidermy it could just 
be where it is. And theoretically, it could be sourced ethically. Usually it wasn't. But but today, VR is so good that that is presenting a situation where we might just stop making taxidermy and get rid of the old stuff. Big example is New York Times covered a permanent VR exhibit that's now at the Paris Museum of Natural History. Quoting the New York Times, visitors can take a trip to an ice blue celestial plain surrounded by an aurora borealis. There, a branching orb traces 460 species, including humans, back to the last universal common ancestor, which is a small single-celled organism thought to be the common origin of all current life on Earth, end quote. So it's like one VR headset and you get the entire history of evolution. And it's wow. just more powerful and immersive than taxidermy can be. That That's available to us now. That's awesome. Question. Can you have sex inside the orb? <laughs> <laughs> that, that one's in a different part of Paris. <laughs> <laughs> look, look at us right in Black Mirror. Look at us doing it. Wow. <laughs> look at us. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, like that that Paris exhibit, they put that up in 2018. So this technology has been this good for a while. It's just basically a process of museums spending the money and installing it and finding a room for it. Um, and then as VR catches on, other museums are retiring their existing taxidermy. In 2018, the Bell Museum of Natural History in Minnesota, they moved all their collections to a new building, and they just took that as an opportunity to dismantle or throw away some taxidermy. Throw it away? Where? Where are they throwing this away? No reason. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which dumpster exactly? Right. And when is it not monitored? <laughs> Just next time we tape, me and Katie will both have really cool stuff on the walls. Like, yeah, look at this. <laughs> Unrelated, though. <laughs> My chair is just going to be entirely made out of ocelots. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and also with this going on, apparently the taxidermy profession is declining too. Uh, back in 2010, the Smithsonian Institution, whole set of museums, they allowed their last taxidermist to retire and didn't replace the position. Hmm. Uh, and apparently it was a taxidermist named Paul Reimer, who had worked there for 25 years and was also a third generation taxidermist. His father hmm. and grandfather were also taxidermists at the Smithsonian. Wow, what a family legacy. Imagine growing up in that house. Just the Oof. nightmares <laughs> as a child, seeing your father stooped over a beaver carcass. But that was probably like, you know, the, the memories that, that you probably have of like your dad, I don't know, sitting around watching TV, reading the newspaper, drinking a beer. Like that is as normal to you as like, oh, dad's wrist deep in beaver bones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when it's like, oh, let's toss the old pigskin around, literally. <laughs> <laughs> like, you think the resolution on your TV is really bad when you're watching football games? Like, it's just a brown spot is the ball? That can't be it. It's not a lifelike <laughs> entire pig. <laughs> Listen, some people's dads teach them how to throw a perfect spiral or how to change a tire, but some people's dads... <laughs> Teach them how to mount a, an entire hog. Yeah. <laughs> well, and also, like, last thing I say with that takeaway is 
basically what you just said. Like there are people still doing taxidermy. I'm going to link an article from Smithsonian Magazine covering like modern practitioners who do it ethically and uh, for various clients, like people still buy it for displays or for their houses. Uh, And also the American Museum of Natural History in New York recently spent $2.5 million refurbishing its taxidermy. So, you know, there are still museums where they're keeping it up. There are others where they're saying digital virtual reality has caught up with taxidermy virtual reality. Let's do that. Well, one of the one of the things that we kind of got an appreciation for in the Biodiversity Museum was that, like, taxidermy isn't just for decoration or, like, display or show, right? Because yeah. a lot of, like, the the specimens that they had in this research museum were, you know, taxidermy, but not necessarily for show. They would be right. uh, taxidermied into, like, the most compact and space-saving position they could possibly get them in, so that later on, if scientists wanted to come back and do research involving a specimen of that species... They could yeah, you've got go it. find it. Yeah, basically like checking wow. out a book from a library, right? Um, and they were taxidermied, so but not in a way to like look pretty. It's just in a way to like preserve the information that we have about this species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like they they would pull out samples to check for mammals that can biofluoresce under UV light, and it's like, ah, well, you know, we've got a bunch of dead animals, so we can check that out with them. Um, have you ever seen? A taxidermy collection of birds that is not not for display, just sort of in the archives. Yeah, that's what we saw at the museum. We we saw them like because we we actually got to see somebody that was a researcher that was going through the archive and like opening the drawers and taking them out and stuff like for whatever research they were doing. So we got to see some of like the the preserved specimens of birds, and it's it's a little scary looking because they're like yeah kind of folded up with their like head back and like beak pointing up sort of. Um, but wow. it was so it's, it's definitely not the sort of like pretty looking taxidermy you're used to seeing. No, they're. They're shoved in there like cutlery. It, it is. There's so many birds <laughs> per square inch. And with with that kind of taxidermy, you know, they, they don't bother with things like replacing the eyes with fake glass eyes and that kind of thing. No. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So it, it looks a little gnarlier, but I thought it was cool because I, 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 it felt to me like I got to see what it's like to actually like do the research work. Um, yeah. And yeah. taxidermy has a huge place in research work, so I was I was excited to see that. That is so interesting, that difference between display taxidermy and filed away for business taxidermy. Because <laughs> you just approach it so differently. You're like, the bear doesn't need to be cool. It's just, uh, it's it's a business bear. I'm not one of those showboats, like Teddy Roosevelt or whoever that <laughs> put this up in his, his den. Yeah. It's a tactical taxidermy. <laughs> Well, and, and all this leads into the last takeaway for the main episode. That's quick, but it's takeaway number three. The world's collection of taxidermy could be a useful repository of old DNA. Mm. And this, this is a little of a speculative story. I, I, I couldn't find much evidence of this leading to breakthroughs or anything right now, but... There is potential new value in these old displays being a source of extractable DNA in spite of all the many preservative things used to keep it up and also in spite of the age of it. Yeah, because, I mean, you're you're basically getting tons of like preserved hair and skin cells and stuff like that where you're going to have 
DNA packed away in there. And I, we actually just, the episode that we just put up this week, we talked a lot about like the de-extinction debates and, you know, discourse around de-extincting animals. And I think a lot of that relies on taxidermied specimens. Even with existing animals, apparently the, the main story of an existing species for this, it's from 2015, uh, a team at Penn State University got DNA from like a piece of university taxidermy. It's a taxidermied version of the school mascot, the Nittany Lion. Wow. If people don't know, Nittany Lions is the team mascot. That's sort of a funny name for a mountain lion. It's just a mountain lion <laughs> from a location called Mount Nittany that is near the school. But they had an 1856 taxidermied mountain lion. And then the Harrisburg Patriot News newspaper says that in 2015, a university team took DNA from it and, quote, the ultimate goal is to sequence the DNA and compare that to DNA sequences in genes of mountain lion populations in California and Florida. We're hoping to compare how diverse the species has become and how much they've differentiated over time, end quote. That's really cool. You know how there's like funny taxidermy, like a squirrel wearing a cowboy hat, riding an armadillo, you know, like the very silly creative taxidermy. I'd love it if like someone's bookend at some point, like scientists reach out and we're like, we need this. We need to extract the DNA from (laughs) your cowboy squirrel because this is actually a rare uh, red squirrel that we need to sequence the DNA from. Yeah. Like, part of your jackalope can save the world, you know? Like, great. Okay. <laughs> cool. I heard about a story not too long ago where somebody, like, in their house just happened to have, like, a taxidermied thylacine, which Ooh. went extinct, like, almost 100 years ago. Uh, and somebody just, like, had one in their house. I- I'm trying to remember. I don't know the details of the story, but, like, it was a weird place that it should not have been, and they found one. Like, is, a whole taxidermied one. Is that is that the same story where they found the remains of the last living thylacine, like, in a museum cabinet or something? Is that what I'm thinking of? Maybe. It was something where they did not know it was there. Yeah. And they they wow. just happened upon, like, yeah. oh, oh, whoops. It was just sitting in a cabinet somewhere. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there was a different story where somebody okay. found, like, a taxidermy thylacine where there wasn't oh, supposed to be one. <laughs> okay, okay. I could imagine at least some of these being somewhat humorous to people because... Because other examples of existing species I could find, apparently a 2017 study at Trinity College Dublin looked at the DNA of local taxidermied goats. And there was a 2020 study in Australia where they looked at DNA from a taxidermied lobster. Like, hmm. like it, it just seems increasingly like funny taxidermy will play into this for real. Like, sure. <laughs> and, and then also... You know, people, these taxidermies can be like old paintings or something where we just find them in attics. So that totally makes sense (laughs) that somebody just had an extinct species and was like, oh, yeah, that's just I just like scared the kids with it in the attic. Is that a thing? Is that useful? (laughs) Okay, great. That's one thing that I, I do find really valuable about taxidermy is that it can be a way of like preserving a species that we either have lost or might lose. It's an interesting way of like getting to connect with an animal that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And that's, you know, I, I enjoyed coming out of this research being more excited about taxidermy than I was. I think I was pretty neutral about it, but (laughs) you know, I don't, I don't need people to like go do it today, but the stuff we have is like 
kind of strangely useful and also uh, a real artifact of how all media entertainment knowledge used to work. Yeah. I also do appreciate that, like, people that are doing taxidermy now, um, I think because of the access to communication with each other and access to information and technology that we have now is like taxidermy is in a much more ethical place now than I think it has been in the past. So people that are doing it now, I think are doing it a lot more ethically than they may have typically done it in the past. Um, So, I mean, if you're still doing taxidermy and you're doing it like ethically and responsibly, good on you. (laughs) You're doing it. Yeah. Like collecting, like collecting roadkill and putting it in the freezer you share with your roommate. (laughs) (laughs) katie whoever took that spot is listening to this episode right now they're like oh i almost didn't get this part but cool yeah i'm probably actually i'm probably missing out man there would have probably been so many cool like skunks and you could have had a free possum i know could have had a chair made out of dead possums the one that got away (laughs) Folks, that's the main episode for this week. Welcome to the outro with fun features for you, such as help remembering this episode with a run back through the big takeaways. Takeaway number one, a lot of the world's oldest extant taxidermy is specifically crocodiles in European churches and government buildings. Takeaway number two, taxidermy was once a primary form of virtual reality. And it might get replaced by the digital version. And then takeaway number three, the world's supply of taxidermy could be a useful repository of old DNA. Those are the takeaways. Also, I said that's the main episode because there is more secretly incredibly fascinating stuff available to you right now. If you support this show at our network, MaximumFun.org, members get a bonus show every week where we explore one obviously incredibly fascinating story related to the main episode. This week's bonus topic is a guy named William Temple Hornaday, who is a taxidermist and very complex figure who helped save the American bison. And you know I love bison. Visit sifpod.fun for that bonus show for a library of more than 11 dozen other secretly incredibly fascinating bonus shows. Also, new Boco from the Maximum Fun Drive that we're on the tail end of. You've got a special show with me and Katie and David Christopher Bell. You've got a bunch of special shows from Christian and Ellen Weatherford, our buddies from Just the Zoo of Us who guested this week, and a catalog of all sorts of other Max Fun stuff. It is special audio. It is just for members. Thank you so much for being somebody who backs this podcast operation, who joined in the Maximum Fun Drive party or any other party. It is always a good time to join. Additional fun things, check out our research sources. On this episode's page at MaximumFun.org, key sources this week include the New York Times, Smithsonian Magazine, Atlas Obscura, and digital resources from Westminster Abbey. That page also features resources such as native-land.ca, and I'm using those to acknowledge that I recorded this on the traditional land of the Canarsi and Lenape peoples. Also, Katie taped this in the country of Italy, and Christian and Ellen each recorded this on the traditional land of the Timucua-speaking Mokama people. 
Also want to acknowledge that in mine and Ellen and Christian's locations, in many other locations in the Americas and elsewhere, Native people are very much still here. And that feels worth doing on each episode. And join the free SIF Discord, where we're sharing stories and resources about Native people and life. We're also talking about this episode on the Discord, and hey, I have a randomly incredibly fascinating tip for you on another episode, because each week I put all of our episode numbers through a random number generator. This week's random episode is episode 52, which is about number two pencils. It turns out one number two pencil can write more than 100,000 words. Somebody checked. So I recommend that episode. I also recommend my co-host Katie Golden's weekly podcast, Creature Feature, about animals and science and more. I also recommend our buddies Ellen and Christian Weatherford's podcast, Just the Zoo of Us, a maximum fun show where they rate animals in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics, which are just surprisingly comprehensive categories when you listen. It really works. I'm also going to link Ellen's podcast, Spellbound and Gagged, which has had amazing guests such as Katie Golden. We're, we're buddies. You know, it was really nice to make this together, and I'm sure we'll do stuff again soon. Our theme music is Unbroken Unshaven by the Budos Band. Our show logo is by artist Burton Durand. Special thanks to Chris Souza for audio mastering on this episode. Extra, extra special thanks go to our members, and thank you to all our listeners. I'm thrilled to say we will be back next week with more secretly incredibly fascinating. So how about that? Talk to you then. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.